Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jack Snefflin. Thank you for joining us this week. It is issue 10 of our comics bracket. This week, we'll be discussing 1993's Dennis the Menace, as well as 2011's Cowboys and Aliens. Slash 1997, slash 2006. It's been a long time in development hyperspace. <laughs> well, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into Dennis the Menace. Dennis is a surprisingly storied franchise. The last time we discussed it, we talked about the eerily similar named comic strips from the US and the UK that premiered days apart. But rather than get into all that, we'll go ahead and focus just on the US Dennis the Menace. Start off in 1951, debuts in 16 newspapers, and it's created by uh, writer and artist uh, Hank Ketchum. And it still runs today, now in over a thousand newspapers in 48 countries and 19 languages, and is run by a few of Ketchum's former assistants, as well as his son Scott. Literally a year later, Ketchum spearheads the construction of Dennis the Menace Playground in Monterey, California, and then that's finally completed in 1956. Oh, that's nice of him. 1959 sees the live-action Dennis the Menace television show starring Jay North, and the series ran for four seasons, ending in 1963 with 146 episodes. Jay North continued to act and voice act, but mostly stopped by 1980. And in the early 1990s, also joined a group called A Minor Consideration, which is a group that supports former and current child performers with their struggles in the entertainment industry. Nice. Partially because he went through a lot of those same struggles while on Dennis the Menace and in the guardianship of his aunt and uncle. I'm not going to mention the details here. It's very sad if you feel like going for it. Jay North on Wikipedia, you'll find what you need to know. But moving on to lighter topics. Then in 1971, Dennis the Menace becomes the official mascot of Dairy Queen and stays there for 30 years until 2001. And by official mascot, you mean the Queen's consort? (laughs) No. Definitely not. I mean, he appears on the Blizzard Cups and occasionally the kids' meal toys. Mm. Ten years later, Dennis the Menace in May Day for Mothers, an animated Mother's Day television special airs. Then in 1986, there is a full Dennis the Menace animated series, and it runs for two seasons, totaling 78 episodes. In 1987, a Dennis the Menace made-for-TV live-action film airs. And when it's released on home video, it is marketed as Dennis the Menace Dinosaur Hunter. Nice. Then in 1993, we get the live action theatrical release, which we will be discussing in this episode, as well as a new animated series called the all new Dennis the Menace, specifically created to capitalize on the film, which runs for only 13 episodes. Then in 1998, we have a direct-to-video sequel of the 93 film called Dennis the Menace Strikes Again, and it contains none of the previous cast. Oh. I mean, you obviously have to replace Dennis. It's been five years, but literally no one else comes back. Although Betty White does play uh, Mrs. Wilson. A good casting choice. Then in 2002, we get Dennis the Menace Cruise Control, which is an animated made-for-TV film. Please tell me it's part of the Cruise-verse. I... As far as I can tell, it doesn't even take place on, like, a boat. I don't know why it's called Cruise Control, but it's an animated film, and the character size is actually based off of the 1986 animated series as opposed to the more recent 93 animated series. Oh. (laughs) And that premiered on Nickelodeon's Sunday Movie Tunes in 2002. Then in 2006... Oh, good God. The 125-pound bronze statue of Dennis from Dennis the Menace Playground is stolen. The original has never been recovered. (laughs) What? 
Uh, and uh, about six months later, it was replaced with a reproduction of another statue that the Ketchums owned from the same artist. So you're telling me somewhere out there, someone just has a giant Dennis the Menace chilling probably in their like lounge basement or whatever. Either that or it was melted down for scrap. Oh. I hope not because the statue is apparently estimated to be worth uh, about $30,000. Wow, that's not bad. And I mean, that's, you know, in 2006. I'm not sure what inflation would have taken it up to now. And then finally... What? There's more? In 2007, a second sequel to the 93 film is released. Once again, direct-to-video. Once again, containing none of the cast from either the original or the 1998 film. Hold on. It's a sequel to the first one, not just like a third in the series? It is a third in the series. Oh, okay. It's a sequel to both Dennis the Menace and Dennis the Menace Strikes Again. This film is called... A Dennis the Menace Christmas, and is of course loosely based on A Christmas Carol. Oh, gods. We said a sequel to the first one. I hope we have like a <laughs> branching timelines thing. Ah. Oh. It's a foster my dream of the eventual Menace on Infinite Dennis. <laughs> two Menace, two Dennis. <laughs> so, that is the surprisingly long and storied history of the Dennis the Menace franchise. There's a couple of video games in there, but they are not worth mentioning. All that thing you just said was more exciting to me than the whole Dennis the Menace, the movie. Yeah, there's not a lot to like about this film. I'm going to stay positive because it's who I am as a person. The wink and blink and a nod scene where Mrs. Wilson is reading this childhood poem to Dennis and we cut to Dennis's whole family falling asleep in different places. It's really nice and sweet and the music really sells it and it's very stirring and I felt a feeling. Yeah, that is probably the best scene in the film. Mm-hmm. And then followed up with... Mr. Wilson kissing a dog thinking it's his wife because comedy? After being a huge <clears throat> dick. Yep. More characters kiss someone who they don't expect to be kissing in this movie than you'd expect from this movie. Joey also gets kind of shamed by Margaret for it in a weird way. Don't call me stupid baby rump kisser. That I'm uncomfortable with. A lot of the gendered stuff with the children I'm very uncomfortable with. The first time through was like, hmm. This time through was like, hmm. It just feels so incredibly dated in 2019. I get that it's supposed to be funny, but it, it's not. No, it, I honestly feel sad that these kids are like between the ages of four and six and they're already this indoctrinated into what proper gender roles are. Margaret reminds me a lot of a kid I worked with at an after school program a few years back who kind of had that same trying to act like a girl far older than she is. And there were a lot of stuff she needs to work through that made me worried about how she's going to develop. And I, I'm still worried. I mean, I, she, she was like that when that job ended. Yeah, there's also some really unfortunate insults slung Margaret's way by Dennis and Joey. At one point when he, Dennis is trying to get out of going to Margaret's to be babysat, he specifically calls Margaret ugly in a chain of insults. I'm like, that's not necessary. Oh. I mean, she's maybe not the nicest person. Some of those insults are maybe valid, but that one's just kind of mean. Yeah. And because Dennis is being a chauvinist, and it's supposed to be kind of cute because he's a kid, but he's still being a chauvinist, it makes me like him less as a character. And you shouldn't make me like your character less, unless you're trying to do a redemption thing. And at no point does Dennis have a whole learning about feminism thing. <laughs> God, Dennis the Menace attends a Roxanne Gay class. That's... That's something we need. I mean, if you do want to see, like, male children discover a feminism, there is an episode of the Campton Underpants television show that does exactly that. It's actually pretty good. 
I was going to go with uh, the Malcolm in the Middle episode where they try to do a graffiti on a billboard, but then get caught and try to turn it into a feminist protest and then learn about feminism along the way. (laughs) That is also a very good example. I know, right? Why are we just doing a podcast about Malcolm in the Middle? I mean, I'm down for that. (laughs) Cool. So bracket over. Um, Congrats to probably the Peanuts movie for winning or whatever. And uh, so, yes, no, maybe. I don't know. we're talking about the kids there's this one scene that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me margaret dennis and joey's initial foray to the to the fort and they're all up in it like fixing it up getting it ready to actually play in and then the camera pans down to switchblade sam who is like looking up at them and then sort of walks away and the camera pans to the empty carriage letting you know that margaret's doll is gone I don't understand why Switchblade Sam would even take the doll. It doesn't seem like he would be able to make much money pawning it. A scene or two later, Margaret mentions that it's an antique, I guess trying to justify why Sam would take it. But A, how would he know it's an antique? B, how is he going to find a buyer for it that's actually going to pay him what it's worth? It's also like super big and bulky. You can fit so much jewelry and coinage where that baby doll is going to be in your sack. That'll give you. However, his decision to steal it and his knowledge of its properties is entirely explicable if you've seen one of the Annabelle movies, I'm sure. That seemed like something that would get revealed if the doll is haunted when was seeking a worthy host or something. I don't know. To be menacing and creepy, he seems to enjoy menacing children, which, me. But yeah, I, I don't get it. Yeah, we've talked about how the juxtaposition of Switchblade Sam and children in the film is very not good. A lot of the kid-centric scenes are also not very good because, unfortunately, none of them are terribly good actors. No, and they're really young. I get it. Yeah. While the kids aren't always well-acted, they sometimes have some good writing moments. I like the scene where Dennis is smarter than Buzz about books and things. That was kind of a fun, weird scene. It was pleasantly absurd. Mm-hmm. Also, as a side note, I'm sure the character has a name. I'm calling him Buzz. Buzz is the older brother from Home Alone, and he sets a trap. He's learned. <laughs> <laughs> We've touched on just about everyone in this, except the kind of meat of this film, and that's Dennis and Mr. Wilson and their relationship. Mm-hmm. This film is not very convincing when it comes to how that relationship works at all. Why does Mr. Wilson pretend to be asleep at the opening scene of the film rather than just telling Dennis to leave? I get he doesn't want to be seen as a grump or whatever, but... Uh, also, better question, why don't you just lock your door? I mean, I know that especially Sam has that line where it's like, I bet they don't even lock their doors. But you can just lock your door, it's fine. Sure, he seems like a nice guy, but even nice people lock their doors at night. It's not that weird. Are are you saying that Mr. Wilson seems like a nice guy? Sorry, Mr. Wilson (laughs) wants to seem like a nice guy. (laughs) Fair enough. I think that's my biggest problem with this film is that they're trying to frame it as, oh, Dennis is getting into all this trouble and is causing headaches for Mr. Wilson and all that, but so much of it feels like Mr. Wilson is bringing it on himself like the whole scene where he gets attacked in the garage by the vacuum and then presses his thumb into the tack on the doorbell and gets antiqued that's all because he's like 
Dennis is messing around in the garage and playing with paint. That's why my chicken tasted like pig. I'm going to break into their garage and investigate. Just leave well enough alone and you wouldn't have had to go through any of that. Yeah. Same thing at the party. If he had just let Dennis be fully participant at the party as opposed to just, you know, you sit here in the garage, don't touch anything. He wouldn't have had to deal with, oh, all of the food and drinks and refreshments are now splattered across my driveway. And clearly a lot of the adults at the party are enjoying Dennis. They could, he could easily be like, hey, Ethel, can you look after this kid for, for an hour or so just so that you know he doesn't get into trouble while I'm running a party? Or Martha, who has taken a shining to the lad and really enjoys his company. Yeah. And like this could all be fine if they like learn a lesson from any of this, but there's no point where Mr. Wilson goes, oh, I'm the bad guy. The problem is me. I mean... Kind of, but we've already talked about how that realization rings really hollow with the after credit sequence. Yeah, and like he learns, he realizes that he's he's the backup, but he doesn't realize the ways in which it's manifesting. Just like a broad yeah. sense of him. Yeah, himself. like he feels superior to everyone, and he can't keep to himself. He's hostile towards everyone, but he doesn't want to be called on it. Mm-hmm. Everything has to be done his specific way. Honestly, Mr. Wilson is a really good ex- example of more subtle types of toxic masculinity, especially in older men. Yeah. Another problem with the various Dennis antics is that while they ostensibly provide comedy, I don't think a lot of the comedy holds up, but I give that to you know, the intent is that these are little comedy vignettes. This is an hour and a half movie. It would make sense for Dennis to have caused some menace that would like drive the plot, but nothing he really does causes any noteworthy problems until the third act. And the easy fix for this is for the movie to open with him causing some sort of notable catastrophe, nothing like harmful, just like starting a fire or breaking a statue or whatever. And his parents are like, oh, we'll pay for it. How will we pay for it? I'll have to get a job. And that way his mom having a job would, would go from being just a thing that exists to a extension of his being a menace and that could create more attention for the characters. It's a really simple way to fix things that would actually make Dennis his menace matter. Like we get the scene where they're calling all these potential babysitters and no one wants to take on Dennis for that period of time. Like obviously they've all dealt with him or heard stories about him and don't think he's worth the trouble of the paycheck, but we don't actually see any of that. It's just sort of implied. Having some sort of event that caused that would have made that scene better. Even Nikki from Orange is the New Black is like, sure, I'll babysit and I'll arrange to bring a, to bring a date over, which means she seems to think that it won't be too stressful of a night. You don't bring, like, someone you're going to, like, make sex at if you think that you're going to have trouble all night with this kid. And for the most part, it seemed like a relatively easy night. They had Dennis being a ding-dong ditcher, and then they antiqued Mr. Wilson. Yeah. I mean, admittedly, your kid being a ding-dong ditcher when you're trying to get your ding-dong on (laughs) is mildly annoying, but it's not forego a paycheck annoying Mm. in the summer when nothing else is going on. We see some of Dennis's antics with Switchblade Sam, and from there, they're cutting back and forth between that and the sad, somber moments of Mr. Wilson realizing that he drove Dennis away and he's the cause of anything that happens to Dennis and him rethinking pretty much everything about his interactions with children, and it does not work. It really doesn't. One last thing I will say, because this is a John Hughes film, and it's got some of that Home Alone stank on it. A lot of people have talked about how Home Alone has a lot of greens and reds in basically every frame, and the McAllister house is all just greens and red furniture and clothes and all that jazz to make it feel more like Christmas, which it is. It's really cool. There's a lot of 
extra effort that they didn't have to do, but they did, and that's really nice. In the opening scene with Dennis and his parents in their house, everyone's wearing either blue or white, and then there's a lot of red as well, so it kind of creates this like American flag in their house, which is a cool way to suggest this idea of the traditional Americana. I appreciate that little effort and detail he puts mm-hmm. in. Yeah. There are also some other really small little things. There's this barely perceptible line from Switchblade Sam when Dennis is trying to teach him how to properly tie someone up. I tied up lots of guys in my life. Well then. <laughs> that line definitely reads differently as an adult. But on a more serious note, when Mr. Wilson is chastising Dennis after missing the flower bloom at his garden party. He calls Dennis a selfish, spoiled little boy. And I really like how everything in the film also points to that being a description for Mr. Wilson. Mm-hmm. There is a kernel of really great Mr. Wilson and Dennis understanding each other and growing because of that understanding in this movie that doesn't really get to bloom. And I'm sad because like, it's, it's almost there. Mm-hmm. Speaking of almost there, let's talk about Cowboys and Aliens. So, it's 1997. Scott mm-hmm. Mitchell Rosenberg has the rights to a comic called Tex. It's a spaghetti western comic, in every sense of the word, with a lot of, like, gunslingers and Native American stereotypes and weird west stuff. You know, whatever. Like, there's a, a guy who's an occultist and a scientist. It looks kind of fun, probably a bit problematic. And he's trying to sell the film rights to it, but it's not working out. So he gets to one of his marketers, whose name is literally uh, Rustamagic, to try to sell this in the European markets. Instead, he starts selling the name Cowboys and Aliens, and not much else. Just that idea. Putting that idea out there. And people are like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. I don't know what it is yet, but it's Cowboys and Aliens. Who doesn't want that? Sidebar. Urban Rustamagic has a fascinating history, and his comic about his life is really interesting. You should go look that up. Anyway, he sells Cowboys and Aliens and says that it's based on a comic. However, the comic doesn't exist yet. This is like early 2000s. But people are still buying it. And this is not unusual for the film industry. There's a lot of stuff where someone just says we have it and someone's like, great, when you can have it on my desk? Uh, two weeks from now. And then they write something really, really fast. That's how Let Me Clear My Throat got published. And I love Let Me Clear My Throat. On the flip side, that's also what they tried to do with Handbook for Mortals, which I'm going to put a link in the description because I can't get into that. It's... So much. It is this wild cavalcade of lies and scamming that happened last year, and it's so good. Anyway, Columbia buys the film rights in 2004, and they just sort of sit on it. They know they want it, but they don't really want to do anything with it. And to light a fire under them, they get the comic written pretty fast, and then start selling it for half price. So it would be about 10 bucks to start selling it for $5, but then there's discounts everywhere. So people buying it for like 2 or $3 for a whole trade paperback. Pretty good deal. Lots of people go for it like, hey, I've got some spare money. Oh, whatever, I'll grab this book that looks kind of cool. So the numbers shot up. And if you're a distant film exec and all you know is the numbers of, oh, people are buying this comic. Look at these sales. Clearly, this is a good product. And you don't know about the whole clever distribution schemes. You think that this is a a really popular thing, and you greenlight it. And that's what happened. So it went to production, and a lot of people cycled through until John Favreau got his hooks into it, and originally we were going to have Robert Downey Jr. as the main character. And I'm so sad we didn't, because he would be a great choice to play Zeke, the character from the comics, who's way more fun and lackadaisical and has a personality. But he decided to be Sherlock Holmes or whatever, you know, the role of a lifetime, one of the most iconic things you can learn more about in my other podcast, Studying Granada, link in the description. And so they went with 
Daniel Craig, who's fine, whatever. Looking into this, I kind of get the feeling that John Favreau doesn't get it. He wanted this to be taken seriously. He like studied classic westerns and shot on film to give her that veneer of Hollywood credibility. And he wanted Daniel Craig to bring his like high art Oscar worthy performance to the role. And I'm like, no, no, dude, this is this is Cowboys and Aliens. This isn't meant to be like high art. This should be an Edgar Wright. The comic is fine. It's it's pretty. The art style is you know all right. It's got some good colors. The characters are paper thin. The story's pretty weak and it wears its theme on its sleeve but it knows what it wants to be it's having a good time its approach is what's the coolest possible thing that could happen next and i appreciate that and i'm sad that john favreau didn't get that so we got a decent film it did reasonably well people generally thought it was okay but didn't make genre blending a big thing in hollywood it didn't make weird westerns a big selling point which i'm sad about because i love weird westerns Mm mm-hmm It is really sad that we didn't get a campier version that had horses with hover horseshoes or the main character challenging the main antagonist to a high noon style gun duel. Right. And part of that is the aliens are so unsentient they may as well not be. So you don't really get any kind of that fun character dialogue you get between Zeke and uh, Commander Gar, etc. Yeah. Part of Weird West is that things are just there and you're not supposed to question them, you're supposed to have fun. And the only just there sci-fi element is Olivia Wilde, and that's mostly just because she can regenerate her body and her makeup stays on somehow. And they need to have at least one woman in the cast who wasn't just a object for Sam Rockwell to co-rescue. Yeah. Also, Sam Rockwell's character was originally a Latino, and I'm sad that he wasn't. They heard Sam Rockwell was interested, and so they grabbed him on. And I get it. He's a good actor, but I'm kind of sad we didn't have, like, a more diverse cast. Also, imagine if Sam Rockwell was the main character instead. Imagine Uh, how fun that would have been. That would have been so much more interesting. Right? Uh Uh-huh. Speaking of Sam Rockwell, there are just too many characters in this movie. Yeah, to be fair, that is also endemic to the original comic. Yeah, but I think here they try to flush them all out as opposed to like letting them be cardboard cutouts. I was going to say, the characters your DM hand you for a one-shot. <laughs> Same thing. Yeah, and because there's so many characters, no one really gets, gets that good of an arc. Ella is from space, but she doesn't really like get an arc. She just gets a being mysterious and revealing her mysteriousness. Yeah, there's also the fact that she's a composite character of the two female characters in the comic, and they have very, very different character arcs there. Mm -hmm. So they kind of just didn't know what to do with her. Yeah, and in the comic you've got a woman who's kind of breaking out of her shell being like, yeah, I know Hila wants one thing, I want it too! Which is a really fun character trait. And then a green-skinned space babe who's learning how to talk human, and her lesson for the world is the code word is howdy. And I am here for yeehaw aliens. Mm-hmm. But I'd say cut the kid. Uh, yeah, especially since they whitewashed him. Yeah, that too. Well, it is somewhat unclear what the kid's ethnicity is, because we don't see either of his parents. We see one singular grandparent. Mm. Yeah, in the comic, the kid is no name, who is a Native American character who has yet to earn his name. Right. And I mean, I really, there are relatively different characters. It's not like no name's plot was this youth's plot, Yeah, but sort of the only kids in the narrative. Yeah. So. And this is not typically a sort of story that would inject a child into it if the source material didn't have one already. Right. Then again, the film was kind of being pitched before the comic was even done, so maybe the kid was already there. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Another really interesting thing from the comic that I wish wound up here is in the comic they have the inclusion of this human traitor who tries to ingratiate himself with the aliens. He's 
sees what way the wind is blowing. Mm-hmm. And I think that would have been a lot more interesting. Unfortunately, you can't have that with the direction they took the aliens. Right. And that could have been a really fun thing for either Harrison Ford's kid, the sort of slimy git of a kid, or for Sam Rockwell's character. I mean, you know, I love Sam Rockwell's character in this, but he's definitely a coward, and I could see him thinking, well, I want to save my wife. I will trade all of my planet for her. And I'd be like, mm-hmm. oh, I judge you, but I get it. Mm-hmm. While we're running through characters who could have been served better, I wish Harrison Ford had died instead of Adam Beach's character. Yes. So you got Harrison Ford, who's this very malicious cattle-bearing guy, who's super racist, and his arc is learning to not be racist. And suddenly, he wasn't racist anymore. And uh, Adam Beach's character arc is sort of living under the surrogate father's shadow and wanting to be worthy of him, but not. And also the fact that he is not white, and so the racism that his pseudo-father espouses is really difficult to unpack. Right. He is a bit of an arc where he's called a proper Apache by this chieftain. And, like, there's something there. I think if Adam Beach had been about to die, but Harrison Ford had left him the way and saved him and died in the process, that could have been a way for Harrison Ford to complete his arc of, like, learning to care about other people and specifically to care about Native Americans and for Adam Beach to feel like he's worthy of this surrogate father's love. And, sure, complicated, weird race stuff in there. Don't get me wrong, but that would have been a more satisfying story ending. Harrison Ford could have said something like, I did it to save my son and let it be kind of ambiguous which son he's talking about. And that would also probably would have gotten rid of some of the weirdness of Percy getting Foxy Loxied at the end. Yeah, a little bit. It's definitely better here than it is in Chicken Little, but it, it's still there. Yeah. When Adam Beach has clearly been somewhat either brainwashed or gaslit or something to be in this position under Harrison Ford and and his horribleness. So him starting to be deprogrammed uh, would make an interesting contrast with Harrison Ford's biological kid who's now been Foxy Locked and probably needs help figuring out who he is too. And that could be a really interesting dynamic to imagine them having in the future. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, we need to go to the Pedant Corner. Yes! Hello, Pedant Corner. I've missed you. Pedant's Corner. So pedantic. Sam Rockwell's the saloon owner, and at one point in the film, he mentions that a glass of whiskey at his establishment is 50 cents. Oh, did you go through and calculate how much that would be worth in real money? Or modern money? I did not go through and calculate how much that would be in modern money. I looked up prices of whiskey would be in a typical saloon at the time. (laughs) So many of you will probably be familiar with the term two-bit establishment or two-bit saloon. Well, that's actually pretty literal. Back in the Old West, a lot of establishments were one-bit saloons or two-bit saloons talking about the price for a glass of whiskey. One bit being uh, 12 and a half cents, two bits being a quarter. Oh, wow. So this is a four-bit saloon. Yes, this is a four-bit saloon. That in a one-bit town. Exactly. Makes no goddamn sense. Sam Rockwell is charging these people through the nose for their whiskey. Wow, man, that could have been an interesting character trait, too, if, like, the, the aliens had offered him gold or something, and if he's just, like, super greedy. Ugh, so much missed opportunity. It also, I guess, makes Percy, I guess, a bit less of an asshole, then, if he's angry at this guy who's overcharging for whiskey. Maybe not much less of an asshole. <laughs> yeah, but... like, Percy is still paying the, the low, low price of free because my daddy said so. Oh, yeah, never mind. I forgot that bit. Speaking of, of pedantry, this is more like film history trivia stuff. Mm-hmm. While I think there was an element of pretension in the production, I do appreciate that they went to extreme lengths, like shooting in places where historical westerns had been shot for the sake of that. 
Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Western history in this, and I dig that. A lot of this film, especially the first act, really feels like a love letter to the Westerns of old. Mm-hmm. It looks gorgeous. I have very few problems with the visuals of the film other than the lighting in a number of the night scenes. Oh, here's another thing that we got the kind of from the comic. In the comic, uh, one of the indigenous characters uh, scavenges some like heat vision goggles or whatever from an alien wreckage and just wears those around and uses those for hunting and combat and it's really cool. They could have had that and that would allow them to have a character who can see in the dark and they let them have these dark scenes but also let you see some things sometimes. Yeah, like you could have had your monster movie sort of scenes but we as an audience would have gotten to enjoy them. Mm-hmm. Or done a nice Predator homage. Mm-hmm. Although I would really hope that they avoid the scene in the comics where Warhawk then uses those goggles to ogle bathing women. Oh yeah, that happened. I'm not saying the comic is great about everything. <laughs> yeah, but neither is the film. No. Three minutes in and we already have a bunch of riders with Native American scalps hanging off of their saddlebags. Yeah. I mean... They got us some new comeuppance. Yeah. They got a nice fight out of that. And... Most of the time, I hate this excuse, but historical accuracy. Right. And oftentimes you need something to signal to the audience that these dudes are bad and it's okay for someone to do violence to them. And that's a way of doing it. I'm not sure we strictly needed that, but I get what they're going for. Yeah. It's less overt than the old white hat, black hat. Yeah. Speaking of which, I love that Olivia Wilde just has an ill-fitting black hat on for most of the movie. Mm -hmm. Olivia Wilde super didn't need to be all mysterious. I mean, just did that... Because they needed someone to be as mysterious as Daniel Craig and his amnesia. Yeah, and like her acting style lends itself to that sort of thing anyway. One thing I do like, now knowing that she's an alien and knowing that she isn't sure to what extent she can regenerate a human body if it gets hurt, when there's like a gun in her face, it's a bit more uncertainty than outright worry. And I appreciate that. It's a really subtle thing, but I can tell that she's, hmm, can I survive this? And if so, what will be the pros and cons of my disguise if I do? Mm-hmm. Also, heading back to Harrison Ford's character's arc and whatnot, I think in general it's pretty poorly handled from a narrative perspective. There's a lot of just plot dumping about his character. There aren't a lot of scenes that show us what he's like, but there are lots of scenes that tell us what he's like. Yeah. Are you thinking about the bit of the end where Adam Beach is like making his case for him? Yeah, there's that. There's also at the beginning where Percy is talking about his dad and other people are explaining the whole cattle baron situation. I don't know. I think it's a decent build up for this character. When we meet him, he's about to split a guy in two for stealing his gold. I get it. I think the build up and payoff is pretty solid for him. Especially because they build him up as the scary dude. We meet him. He is an act of this scary dude. And then he hears the name Jake Lonergan, Daniel Craig's character. And he looks concerned. I think that's a really good indicator of just how dangerous Dale Craig's character is. Mm-hmm. Or is supposed to be. Boy, howdy. He's not really. But whatever. Spent all his refresh on an arm cannon. And none of his refresh on a dang emotional payoff of the ending. Yeah, this film was juggling too many plots. And unfortunately, a lot of characters conclusions are just really hollow mm-hmm. because of it like olivia wilde blowing herself up in the ship that's cool i appreciate her sacrifice thanks for saving the planet olivia wilde from space but nothing in her character arc made it seem like she was particularly concerned about her safety or like she had something to lose mm-hmm. i don't feel sad like oh no she won't see her kids again or oh she's learned to value the lives of others who aren't her own or something yeah, like she specifically came there to prevent another planet to falling to those aliens like hers did. So she's totally fine with this being a suicide mission. Right, which is 
cool and tragic and she should have been the main character but there's no real growth there Mm -hmm. honestly switching the perspective to her being the main character would have been a lot more interesting and i think it would have funneled the alien stuff into the plot a lot sooner and i think it would have helped the film feel more fun Mm -hmm. or even just having her be the protagonist with jake lonergan just that that could Mm -hmm. be fine that is more or less how a lot of the comic works the comic is much more ensemble yeah. Even more than the film is. And it shifts quickly between who the focal character is. So you never really get a sense that anybody is the main character. Yeah, like a little bit with Zeke, but that's mostly because we're introduced to him first and he gets the win against the main antagonist. Mm-hmm. But Warhawk, Verity, Kai, No Name, all of them are pretty significant to the plot. Mm-hmm. And they also are sharing a lot of the page time with the named antagonists and what's going on with them. Mm-hmm. And they're all participant at the end. I mean, sure, Zeke with Jake Lonergan analog gets to kill the main bad guy, but it's everybody else who helps blow up the communication ray that keeps the alien fleet from knowing the Earth exists. Mm-hmm. So in the film, at one point, they're trekking through the desert and they take refuge in a upside-down boat. And at no point does the upside-down nature of this boat affect the plot or the action that's a cool set piece for an action scene but they don't really do anything with it like it's not like doors they can't quite get to because they're too high up or chests that are bolted down and that open up when things fall out of them or something it might have just been a large house mm-hmm. they also don't really do a whole lot of explaining how it got to be upside down in the middle of nowhere obviously aliens but right like i'm you're right and i kind of would like to know what happened there but also i get not knowing yeah but i mean again if we would have been able to see the aliens point of view and they would have been sentient creatures they could have given us a action sequence of whatever happened to the boat earlier in the film and then the payoff of them finding refuge there yeah or we could also get a character who maybe was in the boat when it got picked up and then thrown hundreds of miles from nearest water and who exposed what he saw before dying or something. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of options. Yeah. However, we only have two options today. So the question here is what's moving on? (sighs) Cowboys and aliens on all levels is a better film. It has a better plot. It is more technically proficient. The acting is better. I have plenty of qualms with it, but I enjoy it. I cannot say the same for Dennis the Menace. Yeah, Cowboys and Aliens is very flawed, and the more I learn about it, the more underwhelmed I am. But watching Cowboys and Aliens makes me want to write weird western fic, and watching Dennis the Menace makes me want to go back to writing that weird western fic. (laughs) Well, so it seems that Cowboys and Aliens is moving on to the semifinals. Oh, dang. It will be going up against Road to Perdition. Oh, dang. (laughs) What do we have coming up next week? We have Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles versus the Peanuts movie. (laughs) oh that should also be interesting Uh, i think just to celebrate it we should get some pizza and put peanut butter on it either that way yeah i think we can arrange that cool do some like thai style peanut butter sauce sure i was gonna go to little caesars and grab some peanut butter go flump on it but sure you can get artsy i'm down with it (laughs) i mean it's me we're talking about of course i'm getting artsy Mm, sure but if you are excited about our next episode make sure to follow us on facebook twitter podbean or spotify to be alerted as soon as that episode goes live and if you're excited about me and sherlock holmes i have a podcast that's now starting at season two it's called a study in granada we're going through the 1980s granada television series of the adventures of sherlock holmes they're a lot of fun we make sure it's really easy to do a read-along if you want to join in with us and link in the description once again this has been the gratuitous pausing podcast 
Thank you for tuning in.